This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Grognard We here at the Word of the Week consider ourselves traditionalists. We're not quite grognards, mind you. We don't insist on ignoring 40 years of gaming evolution because we think that gaming peaked in a collection of rules banged out on a typewriter by an unemployed actuary in 1973. Of course, if you're not a grognard, or at least a gaming traditionalist, you might not have any idea what we're talking about. So let us enlighten you. Hopefully you know that our favorite fantasy games like Dungeons & Dragons have been edited, revised, and republished many times over the years since their invention. And as game design has become more sophisticated and tastes have shifted, and different companies and creators have left their marks on the game, it has changed a lot. There's a world of difference between the original white box edition of D&D, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, Basic D&D, Best Me, AD&D 2nd Edition, Dungeons & Dragons 3.0, D&D 3.5, 4th Ed, Essentials, and the current version, 5e. And while most gamers just play the newest hotness, there are a bunch of older gamers, set in their ways, who think games were better when we had to walk 15 miles in the snow against the wind barefoot uphill both ways to get to our games. Back when you could get a core rulebook, a complete set of dice, a chocolate malt, tickets to the latest Buck Rogers double feature, and a brand new Chrysler for $5. But of course, we couldn't afford that back then, because Dad only made a nickel a month at the steel mill. But we didn't care, because we had discipline. Whippersnappers. Amongst gamers, it has become a tradition to refer to these old-fashioned gamers, especially those who cling to older editions of the game we love, as grognards. And by their nature, most grognards can even tell you approximately what the term means or where it comes from. Mostly. Well, partially. But even if they can accurately explain the etymology of the word, most grognards and fewer gamers can't tell you these days how it actually came to mean old-fashioned gamer. Generally, the term grognard is synonymous with the word old guard. And that's a loaded phrase in itself. When people refer to the old guard, they are generally referring to a conservative and traditional subset of an older group. And there is almost always a connotation of old age involved. Moreover, there's generally an implication of protectionism in it. A sort of village green preservation society feel, if you know what we mean. But if you're not part of the old guard, maybe you don't. Let's explain further. The Village Green Preservation Society is a track from the album of essentially the same name by British rock band The Kinks. Formed in 1964 by Ray and Dave Davies of Muswell Hill in North London, The Kinks are regarded as one of the most important rock bands of the 1960s. But while fans of The Kinks might have considered themselves part of the musical Old Guard, The Kinks certainly weren't grognards at the time. They were pushing the boundaries of an entirely new musical genre one that was less than 10 years old at the time. What happened was this. In the United States, in the 1950s, there were two major musical influences that were topping the charts. First, you had the remnants of the big band musical era led by strong vocalists like Doris Day, Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole, and band leaders like Percy Faith and Mitch Miller. But in the South and in the urban centers of the United States, another type of music was playing to a different crowd. 
African-American audiences were listening to a genre of music called rhythm and blues, which were being performed by predominantly African-American artists. Except that the R&B genre was starting to gain broader appeal among both white and black teenagers. And radio disc jockeys like Alan Freed of Cleveland, Ohio, were quick to capitalize on this broadened appeal by filling their shows like The Moondog Show with up-tempo R&B hits. As the audience diversified, so too did the musical stylings. Artists in the 1950s experimented by fusing other musical styles and new instruments with the R&B phenomenon. Jazz and gospel influences were incorporated along with electric blues. And this all culminated in the 1953 pop hit Crazy Man Crazy by Bill Haley and his Comets, which is widely recognized to be the first true chart-topping rock and roll song. And then, in 1955, the first nationwide number one rock and roll hit single hit the airwaves when Bill Haley wrote and performed Rock Around the Clock. And the staying power of that song, and the quick successes of other artists like Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, and the Big Bopper, proved that rock and roll was more than a fad. And then came the king, Elvis Presley. By 1959, 45% of all records sold in the United States were rock and roll. The 1950s were about defining the core of a new musical genre. The 1960s were about pushing its boundaries and turning it from pop culture into art. In the early 1960s, new genres of rock and roll started to appear as the musical genre spread beyond the United States, and it became especially popular in the United Kingdom. By 1965, American rock bands were taking their influence from chart-topping British bands like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, an era of music known as the British Invasion. And as political and social consciousness spread among young people, in the late to mid-60s, the genre of music started to be less about pop love songs and more about making social and political statements. This is also an era of shifting markets when TV becomes a major force in selling music and when album sales begin to grow in importance. Thus, there were splits in the market. For example, bubblegum rock, softer, poppier music, emerged with a focus on getting radio play while harder rock stylings that appealed to more hardcore fans were able to thrive based on album styles. This would eventually pave the way for the emergence of heavy metal. In 1957, though, as rock and roll was taking hold in the United States and starting to spread across the pond, Raymond Douglas Davies' older sister, Renee, died. It was his 13th birthday. The oldest of his six big sisters had been a huge impact on his life. She loved music and dancing, and she had given Ray his first guitar for his birthday earlier that day. The two then played a duet, piano and guitar. And then she went off to a dance at the Lyceum Ballroom in London, and died in the arms of a man she was dancing with. See, Renee had a very dangerous heart condition. She had been told by doctors not to exert herself or her heart might fail but she rarely heeded the advice of her doctors. Moved by a passion for music and for life in general, she went her own way, and it claimed her life that day. Ray was deeply moved by the loss of his sister, but he was left with his own passion for music. In 1962, his love for the guitar got him a gig playing guitar as a replacement for a few weeks. His talent and passion landed him a permanent gig as the guitarist for the Dave Hunt Band. For six months, the Dave Hunt Band worked as the house band at the Crawdaddy Club in Richmond-upon-Thames, 
but when the group missed a gig due to a massive snowstorm, another act filled in for them. An unheard of new group called the Rolling Stones. Davies joined another band, known as the Hamilton King Band, and then the Ramrods, and then the Kinks. This band made a name for itself touring as the opening act for Rick Wayne as he toured American air bases. Their covers of various R&B standards was enough to get them some notoriety, but it was when Davies took the reins as frontman and songwriter and wrote the group's breakout hit, You Really Got Me, that they landed a recording contract. Over the next few years, the band experimented with a number of sounds, everything from traditional R&B to hard rock and even some early metal, but their strengths seemed to be a softer, more melodic sound. And this is eventually where the group settled. And this sound is evident on their sixth album, released in late 1968 following a period of turmoil for the band. Widely renowned as their best album, and their highest ranking album on the music charts, The Kinks of the Village Green Preservation Society contains a song whose jaunty, melodic lyrics perfectly express the old guard connotation of the term grognard. Inspired by a visit to a small English country village, in which a resident waxed poetic to Ray Davies on the importance of preserving traditional values in the country life over industry, modernization, and urbanization, the tongue-in-cheek ballad sings of preserving the old ways from being abused and protecting the new ways for me and for you. And even inspired the band's eventual tagline, God Save the Kinks. Man, do we ever love that song. And album. But we digress. As we noted, the Kinks were anything but grognards. They were on the forefront of musical experimentation, pushing a new genre in a new direction, and looking for their own place in the musical world, which they eventually found. They were young, idealistic, progressive, revolutionary, and passionate. But that actually has a lot more to do with grognardism than you might expect. But to understand how, you have to understand what the term really means. It's true that the word grognard has a very direct association with the term the old guard. In point of fact, it is inextricably related to what appears to be the first use of the term old guard. That term, the old guard, had actually had a lot of mileage. In the United States during the post-Civil War Reconstruction era, Democrats in the southern United States opposed to reunification and the abolition of slavery founded a society called the old guard to preserve traditional aristocratic Southern values. Meanwhile, a unified division of former Northern and Southern soldiers formed a fraternal order of peacekeepers in Atlanta, Georgia, called the Old Guard. Several ceremonial battalions in various cities in the U.S. have also been named the Old Guard. The personal guards of the Russian Emperor were once called the Old Guards, as were certain holdouts of the Bolshevik revolutionaries and a subgroup of the Socialist Party of America the first group to be officially called the Old Guard, who were also nicknamed Le Grognards, were the Imperial Guards of Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte of France. And, in fact, it is precisely because of that group that the nickname Grognard found its way into gaming terminology. The story starts in France, as you might expect, in 1789. And ironically, it begins just after the French government helped a group of ragtag upstarts throw off the yoke of mercantile rule by the British monarchy. Yes, it happened right after the American Revolution. See, France and Britain had been enemies pretty much forever. 
And when rebels in the American colonies were struggling to free themselves from British rule, Grant saw an opportunity to give their enemies a black eye by providing the rebels substantial financial and military aid. It worked, and the Americans freed themselves from Britain. And it also helped bankrupt the already financially unstable France, whose coffers had been greatly depleted by the extravagant spending of King Louis XVI and his predecessors. But the mid to late 1700s had been hard on France for other reasons as well. Two decades of drought had ruined their harvests and disease had spread through their livestock population. Famine and disease were widespread. The poor were struggling. Unrest was growing. Riots, strikes, and looting were becoming more commonplace. And the French monarchy could do little to relieve their plight, even if they wanted to, because they were out of cash. And so, in desperation, the king decided to impose new taxes on the aristocracy, the clergy, and the middle class. What followed was a complicated mess as the various political groups in France, called estates, and the French monarchy tried to negotiate a solution. But no good solution was forthcoming, and the power of the monarchy broke down while the other political groups pushed for constitutional reform. Panic gripped the populace who feared a military seizure of power. Insurgents, to arm themselves for protection in the coming coup, stormed the Bastille Fortress in Paris and seized weapons and gunpowder. And the French Revolution was on. The now-armed peasantry attacked landlords, nobles, bankers, and anyone else under whose thumb they had suffered under the feudal monarchy. Meanwhile, an assembly of forward-thinking progressives made up of those political factions that had opposed the king formed their own government assembly under democratic principles adopted from Enlightenment thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. They declared their intent to replace the ancient monarchical regime with a constitutional government devoted to equality of opportunity, freedom of speech, and representative government. Political infighting between the various progressives, however, stalled the process, and more moderate voices calling for compromise managed to draft a constitutional monarchy. The more radical progressives were unhappy with this turn of events, and infighting continued to hamper the so-called legislative assembly. Violence between radical revolutionaries and counter-revolutionaries continued to wash through Paris. King Louis XVI and his wife, Marie Antoinette, were captured and executed publicly, and the Legislative Assembly declared war on Austria and Prussia, partly because they believed that nobles and aristocrats who had fled France were organizing a counter-revolution and gaining support in Austria and Prussia, and partly because the radical elements had designs on spreading their revolutionary ideas across all of Europe. With the king dead, political infighting in the Assembly, war with various European powers, and a group of radical insurgents murdering anyone and everyone they even remotely suspected of being opposed to them, the period from 1793 to 1794 was so bloody and involved so many public murders that it was called the Reign of Terror. After that, things settled down a bit and a new constitution was drafted. The most radical radicals were ousted from power. A new assembly took power and was, unfortunately, financially bankrupt and completely ineffectual. France was a mess, and when royalists, intent on toppling the revolutionary government and restoring the monarchy, tried to topple the useless government in 1795, a general in the assembly, Napoleon Bonaparte, suppressed the revolution, gained a series of promotions, and went on to help defend France against the Prussian and Austrian armies. 
His strategic expertise allowed him to triumph against the larger armies of Austria in Italy and secure a treaty that stabilized and expanded France's borders. Napoleon then led a series of foreign campaigns in Egypt and the Middle East, mainly intent on disrupting British trade. But as political instability continued to reign in France and more and more people opposed the French Legislative Assembly's ineffectiveness, Napoleon returned home to France and decided he'd just run the whole darn country himself. Seriously. He decided to overthrow the assembly and started the coup d'etat, which is a French term that basically means the punching of the country, that the peasantry had feared was coming a decade before, which had led to the start of the whole revolution. Now, Napoleon was really good at war. He'd been born to a family of minor nobles in Corsica, and if he'd been born a year earlier, he'd have been Italian. But the year before he was born, France acquired Corsica from the Italian city-state of Genoa. In fact, his family name had previously been Bonaparte, which means the good half, until they Frenchified the spelling. Napoleon attended a military school in France and served in the military thereafter, and he distinguished himself early for his strategic and tactical acumen, skills which served him well when he decided to conquer his own country. And Napoleon overthrew the Republic Assembly, defeated the French army, and then drove the Austrians from Italy and forced the British into a peace treaty stabilized France's foreign relations a bit just by forcing everyone back to their own corners. That done, he worked hard to centralize the government and institute major reforms. Napoleon was quite progressive, hence his earlier support for the failed French Republic, and he instituted reforms in banking, education, science, and the arts. He also worked hard to smooth relations between France and the Catholic Church. He drafted the Napoleonic Code, a legal system that would form the foundation of modern French civil law. In 1802, a constitutional amendment made him first consul for life of France. In 1804, he crowned himself emperor of France. And then he decided to build on his success by getting rid of all the kings ever and conquering all of Europe. And thus began the Napoleonic Wars. For almost 15 years, the French army attempted to unite all of Europe under the so-called continental system, which basically amounted to Everyone agrees that France is the best, and we're going to bankrupt Britain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He drove back Russia and Austrian forces, forcing them both to join the continental system and destroyed the last vestiges of the Holy Roman Empire. And to help manage and finance his military campaigns, he re-established the French aristocracy, handing out land and political titles to those who supported his campaigns. It was during this period that Napoleon also rewarded his most faithful and accomplished veteran soldiers, with prestigious membership in an elite infantry unit of his Imperial Guard, known as the VL Guard, or Old Guard. Napoleon supposedly handpicked the members of the Old Guard, which consisted of four regiments, but membership had stiff prerequisites. Members had to have served in at least three military campaigns. They had to have served on the front and faced enemy fire. They had to have served in the military for at least ten years. And they had to be under thirty-five years of age and lots of gaming grognards might be particularly surprised by that last requirement. But Napoleon's old guard wasn't made up of grumpy old men. He wanted them young and able-bodied. The old and the injured were sent instead to the company of veterans. And that might seem weird, considering that the old guard was nicknamed les grognards, from a French word which means to grumble or complain. But the reason for that nickname has nothing to do with waving canes at the kids on your lawn and yelling at clouds. 
Instead, it had to do with one of the many perks of being a grognard, which was being officially allowed to express your discontent freely. Yes, being allowed to complain about military life was a perk, and one that was apparently freely used by the old guard. Thus, they were nicknamed the Complainers. So how did this nickname end up adopted by gamers? Well, you have to remember that Dungeons & Dragons actually grew out of the wargaming hobby. And wargamers were history buffs by their nature. They'd know this stuff, well, most of it. Many grognards do know about Napoleon's old guard, though they assume that it had to do with age and grumpiness instead of youth, progressive revolution, and being allowed to complain. There's actually a more direct origin for the term in gaming. Back in the 1970s and 1980s, there was a tabletop gaming company named SPI, or Simulations Publications Incorporated. They were big. They nearly rivaled Avalon Hill for the title of the biggest tabletop wargaming publisher. They published the popular wargaming and history magazine Strategy and Tactics, and even published a couple of role-playing games, including Dragon Quest, a game which forced video game publisher Enix to retitle their console role-playing game series as Dragon Warrior in the United States. And they dubbed their hardcore fans Grognards in their publications. And the nickname stuck and spread. Of course, the whole story of the nickname Grognard is a term for someone who stubbornly and grumblingly clings loyalty to something that was once born of radical idealistic youth is actually rather appropriate. And it ties a neat bow on this particular story. Because the original edition of Dungeons & Dragons was created by two people. There was the older, wiser, traditional Ernest Gary Gygax who organized and wrote the rules. And then there was a maverick young gamer with crazy ideas for combining traditional wargaming elements with interpersonal negotiation, diplomacy, and inter-party cooperation. His name was Dave Arneson. And his first attempt at creating such a crazy mix of gaming elements was based on his university studies. He studied European history with a focus on the Napoleonic Wars. And his first game was about mixing diplomacy, interpersonal cooperation, and warfare on the battlefields of those wars. And that was what attracted Gary Gygax's attention to him in the first place. Meanwhile, the reason we bring all of this up is to say that we actually like Electrum coins in Dungeons and Dragons and we would have explained further if we hadn't got so distracted with this grognard thing. We must be getting senile in our old age. Oh well, there's always next week. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.